0: chapter 4 of the hand in the dark this librivox recording is in the public domain the hand in the dark by arthur j rees chapter 4 it was before the war many strange things have happened in the world before the boche broke loose with his dream of deutschland uber alles I had been to Melville Island, trying to match a pearl for the Devonshire necklace, and I went from the pearl fisheries to New Zealand, led there by rumours of the discovery of some wonderful black pearls. It was, however, a wild goose chase. These rumours generally are. One of the experts of the New Zealand Fishery Department had been exploring the Horikai Gulf and returned to Auckland with a number of black pearls, which he had found in an oyster bed on one of the barrier islands. He thought his fortune was made, though being a fishery expert he ought to have known better. They were black pearls, right enough, but they came from edible oysters, and were valueless as jewels, not worth a shilling each. I put up at the Royal Hotel Auckland, waiting for a ship to take me back to England. I had arranged to return round the Cape to look at a parcel of diamonds which were expected to arrive at Cape Town from the fields in about six weeks' time. The day before I was due to sail, a rough-looking man named Moinglass, a miner, came to the hotel to see me. He had heard of me as a mining expert, and he had a business proposition which he wanted to place before me. He told me he and four others had just returned to Auckland after putting in six weeks among the volcanic beaches of the North Island, searching—fossicking, he called it—for fine gold these black sand volcanic beaches are common in parts of new zealand the black sand is derived from the crystals of magnetic iron and there is frequently a fair amount of fine gold mingled with them by the continued action of the surf the heavier materials gold and ironstone sand are mingled together between high and low water-mark and what appears as a stratum of black sand is found on the surface or buried under the ordinary sand the gold is usually very fine, and the trouble of sifting and collecting it is great. A man works for wages, and hard-earned wages at that, who goes in for this kind of mining. But your true miner is ever an adventurer and a gambler, and gold thus won is dearer to his heart than gold which might be earned with less effort and more regularity in the form of sovereigns. You see, there's always the chance of a big find— Moinglass and his party had met with fair success along the beaches, but they wanted more than that. Moinglass was anxious to trace the fine gold to its source and find a fortune. He believed, like most miners, that this fine gold is carried along the beds of the larger rivers and distributed by the action of the sea along the different beaches where it is found his theory was that if the drift of the gold sands could be traced to their source a great quartz reef would be found which would make the discoverers wealthy men but he and his mates knew nothing about geology and they wanted somebody to go with them who could chart the course and lead them to the launching point of the gold i had heard this theory before and was not impressed by it i should probably have turned down moinglass's proposition if in the course of his conversation he had not produced a sample of ruby quartz from his pocket and showed it to me he said he had found it while exploring one of the rivers of the yerwira country i examined the quartz attentively it was emery rock and embedded in the pale green mass were ruby crystals and true oriental rubies at that I realized the valuable nature of the discovery, and questioned the man closely as to where he had obtained the ruby rock, but he became instantly suspicious and guarded in his replies. If I joined his party, well and good, he would show me the spot, and we would share and share alike, but he would tell me nothing otherwise. I decided to go, and the terms were agreed upon. We set out from Auckland, the five of us, a week later. We went by coastal steamer to a little port in the Bay of Plenty, and there we plunged into the Yerwira Mountains. My companions thought of nothing but the search for the golden sands, but I was interested only in the ruby rock—there lay the fortune if I could find it. I carried the specimen of corundum in my waistcoat pocket. The river we were ascending to its source was called the ara Hiyoa. It was a rushing, noisy torrent, winding along a deep and narrow gorge, which in places almost met overhead. Some patches of olivine and serpentine encouraged me to think that we would find a heavy belt of the rock somewhere along the upper part of the valley, but my hopes were not realized. Day after day passed, and I found no more of it. When my companions washed the sand of likely stretches of river beach for fine gold, I examined the waste for corundum crystals, but I found no signs of them. We followed the river until we reached an inaccessible mountain gorge which seemed to bar our further progress, but by diverting our course some miles to the northward, we were able to ascend to the upper reaches of the river and here, to my delight, I found the banks and rapids studded with great green masses of olivine rocks. I was anxious to examine these rocks which extended up the mountainside, and my companions agreed with me that it was advisable to leave the bed of the river for the spur of the mountains, where the river apparently took its rise. We crossed the stream and commenced a gradual but oblique ascent of the spur, BUT AFTER CLIMBING FOR SOME HOURS WE FOUND OUR FURTHER PROGRESS STOPPED BY A WIDE AND DEEP GULLY, A SINISTER PLACE FULL OF MASSES OF DARK GREEN ROCKS. AT THE FOOT OF ONE OF THE LARGEST OF THESE ROCKS WE CAME ACROSS A LARGE HOLE DESCENDING ALMOST PERPENDICULARLY INTO THE EARTH. WE LIT OUR LAMPS AND DESCENDED after some scrambling we found ourselves on a landing-place from which another low passage of an easier gradient led into a large cave in the solid rock the surface underneath our feet was covered with a dust so fine that it slipped from beneath us like sand and rose in thick clouds about us the cave was high enough to walk upright in, and seemed to run a great distance, with many lateral passages and smaller recesses off the principal chamber. Moinglass entered one of these passages and disappeared from view. A few moments afterwards we heard him, in a very excited voice, calling us to follow him. We proceeded, stooping in Indian file down the passage, and found Moinglass in a smaller cave at the end of it staring intently at something which was at first difficult to see in the gloom then by the light of our lamps we made out a sapling sticking up between two rocks with a withered human hand impaled on it by a rusty sheath-knife as i was examining it one of my companions who had been exploring the cave gave a cry of astonishment which caused me to look round in a corner of the cave revealed by his lamp lay two skeletons side by side the hand of one skeleton was missing, and in the eye of the other there gleamed a large uncut ruby. We examined the skeletons and searched the cave, but found nothing to throw any light on the mystery or reveal any clue of identity. There was not a vestige of food or clothing around the remains, and not a scrap of writing, only the two crumbling skeletons, the sapling, the sheath-knife, and the ruby. What had brought about such a tragedy in the dim recesses of that prehistoric cave? Who could say? Perhaps the men had been prospecting together, and one had found the ruby, and hidden in the cave, where his companion had found him, and cut off his right hand with some primitive idea of making his vengeance fit the crime. Then perhaps they had been unable to escape from the cave, and had died together of thirst and hunger. "'But what is the use of speculating? "'The secret must ever remain hidden in the cave where the skeletons still lie.' Musard stopped abruptly and sat staring straight in front of him. "'His strange eyes had a fixed look as if gazing into the distance. "'His brown hand rested lightly on the white tablecloth, "'and the great ruby on his little finger gleamed fitfully in the light. "'You haven't told us all the story yet,' said Phil Heredith quietly the other looked doubtfully at the ring of intent faces regarding him i left that part untold for a good reason he admitted it is well i thought it a little bit too horrible to relate oh do tell us said the lady journalist enthusiastically we are all dying to hear it it is such an unusual and exciting story that it would be cruel to leave us in suspense about the end very well then said musard as the other ladies chorused their approval we left the cave, and Moinglass, who considered himself the leader of the expedition, put the ruby in his pocket. That night we camped at a wild, desolate spot not far from the edge of a cliff about two hundred feet high, at the foot of which the bitter, sulphurous waters of the river flowed into a chasm. In the morning we found Moinglass lying dead on his blanket with the rusty sheath knife he had brought away from the cave sticking in his breast. The ruby was gone, and so also was the eldest member of our party, an elderly, dark-faced Irishman named Doyne, who the previous day had angrily disputed Moinglass's right to carry the ruby. We searched for Doyne all that day, but could find no trace of him. The next day we tracked across a glacier-like expanse littered with large blocks of sandstone. It was a grim spot, a horrible, stony, treeless waste which might have been the birthplace of the earth and the scene of creation—a tableland between great mountains, full of masses of rhodonite, contorted into grotesque shapes of stone images—a place where our lightest whispers came shouting back out of the profound stillness from the huge castellated black rocks bristling on the edge of a precipice which slit the valley from end to end. It was there we found Doyne, staggering along the lip of the gorge. He had gone mad in the solitude and was wandering along bareheaded, tossing his arms in the air as he walked. When I saw him I thought of Cain trying to escape from the wrath of God after killing Abel. He saw us as soon as we saw him and started to run. We set out in pursuit, but he fled with great speed, leaping from rock to rock like a mountain goat. He was getting away from us when he slipped and fell into the chasm with a loud cry. We found a path down the precipice and descended, and discovered him at the foot, battered to death, with a ruby clutched in his hand. That ended the expedition. The others insisted on returning to the coast without delay, and when we arrived there they gladly sold their shares in the ruby to me there was rather a long silence when the explorer had finished his narration the long hand of the clock on the mantelpiece was creeping past the half-hour but the circle round the dining-room table had been so enthralled by the story that nobody had noted the passage of time what a ghastly adventure mr musard began one of the ladies with a mirthless little laugh did you never discover anything more about the two dead men in the cave "'No,' replied Musard. as I said, there were no papers or any clue to throw light on their identity. The skeletons must have lain there for many years, for the bones were crumbling into decay. "'You never revisited the spot?' asked Sir Philip. "'I was in the Yerwiras two years later with a Maori guide investigating copper deposits for the New Zealand government, but I did not go back to the valley.' Would it not have been possible to give the poor things, the skeletons, I mean, Christian burial? Mrs. Spicer asked timidly. It was impossible to dig a grave in the solid rock. Besides, they have a sepulchre of nature's which will outlast any human grave, replied Musard. The thing that puzzles me is how the ruby got into the skeleton's eye, remarked the lady journalist musingly. "'If that was the skeleton of the man who killed the other for stealing the ruby, who placed the ruby where you found it? Obviously he could not have done it himself, for it must have been put there after death. Who, then, could it have been?' "'I have no idea,' said Musard, in a tone which suggested that he did not care to discuss the subject further. "'May I look at the ring?' Miss Garton asked. Musard drew it off his finger and handed it to her in silence. The others wanted to see it, so it was passed from hand to hand round the table, to the accompaniment of many admiring comments on the size and beauty of the stone. One of the young officers, with an air of much interest, asked Musard whether he thought there were other rubies like it to be found near the spot. Hardly in that form, replied Musard. It is a puzzle to me how the men who found the ruby managed to get it out of the ruby rock and partially polish it they had no tools or instruments of any kind at least none we found in the cave undoubtedly there are rubies in that part of the world it was near the valley that moinglass found his sample of corundum with a ruby crystal in it on our way back at the head of the valley i came across a belt of magnesian rocks charged with ores of copper and iron and probably containing the matrix of ruby crystals "'I wonder you wear the thing,' said the chubby-faced youth of the flying corps, handing the ring across the table to the explorer. "'Why not?' asked Musard. "'Well, I wouldn't care to wear a ring found in a skeleton's head. I should expect the old bust to flop to the ground while I was doing a stunt if I had a thing like that on my finger. Aren't you frightened of being haunted by the original owner?' "'Oh, I don't know,' replied Musard indifferently. "'There's a horrible history attached to most jewels "'if it comes to that. "'I'm not superstitious.' "'He replaced the ring on his finger "'and added thoughtfully, "'I suppose many people would regard it in that light "'as a grim sort of relic. "'Certainly I shall never forget the valley of rocks "'where we found it. "'It was the strangest place I have ever seen, "'a waste howling wilderness. "'And sometimes I fancy I can still hear "'the cry Doyne gave "'as he slipped or jumped from one of the black rocks into space. "'I remember how it came ringing back from the cliffs "'a hundred times repeated. "'It was—' "'He broke off suddenly as a scream pealed through the moat-house, "'a wild, shrill cry which, coming from somewhere overhead, "'seemed to fill the dining-room "'with the shuddering, despairing intensity of its appeal. "'It was the shriek of a woman in terror.' "'The ladies at the dinner-table regarded one another with frightened eyes and blanched faces. "'What was that?' several of them whispered together. "'It came from Violet's room. My God, what has happened?' exclaimed Phil. "'He sprang to his feet in agitation and pushed back his chair. "'His face was white, his mouth drawn, and he fumbled at his throat with a shaking hand "'as though the pressure of his collar impeded his breathing. Musard rose from the table and walked to where the young man was standing.' "'Don't get upset needlessly, Phil,' he said soothingly, placing a hand on his shoulder. Sir Philip had also risen from his seat, and for the briefest possible space the three men stood thus, facing each other, as if uncertain how to act. Then the tense silence of the dining-room was broken by the loud report of a firearm. "'Let me go!' cried Phil shrilly, shaking off Musard's arm. He turned and limped rapidly towards the door, and as he did so, his infirmity of body was apparent. One of his legs was several inches shorter than the other, and he wore a high boot. Musard reached the door before him in a few rapid strides, and Sir Philip came hurrying after his son. The rest of the male guests followed, flocking towards the door in a body— the first sight that Musard's eye fell upon as he passed through the doorway was the figure of Miss Heredith rapidly descending the staircase. By the hall light he could see that her face was pale and agitated. She walked swiftly up to her old friend and laid a trembling hand on his arm. "'Oh, Vincent, I was just coming for you. Something terrible must have happened,' she began in a broken, sobbing voice. "'I was going upstairs to my room when I heard the scream, and then the shot.' they must have come from Violet's room. Will you go up and see, Vincent? Musard did not wait for her concluding words. He was already mounting the staircase, taking two or three of the broad, shallow stairs in his stride. Phil hobbled after him, and Sir Philip and some of the guests straggled up in their wake. End of Chapter 4